missionary journey and pivots toward his fourth one, which will be to Rome. This is a pivot point. So Acts 21, verse 1. And when we, had depart, when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. Having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come into sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there was a ship to unload, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city, and kneeling down on the beach, we prayed, and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh, Cyprus, of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. And thus enters, ends the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing and benefit to us all. Time between two cities, a holy interlude. People of God, in this reading, 
which many people may ignore, I think we find great import and meaning. It looks like a little bit of a trip, a little bit of a journey, a little bit of a turn, a little bit of a twist on the way. Every word in Scripture is complete, and we are to listen and to obey and follow all of God's revelation in Scripture. Paul is turning the corner, and he's heading toward Jerusalem, and he is anticipating a great celebration of the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. And we all know what happened on the first Pentecost in Jerusalem. Behind on the dock in Ephesus or Miletus, Miletus, the situation had gotten quite tense. Oh, yes, indeed. Paul had passionately poured out his heart and, yes, the inner core of his being to the Ephesian church. The elders had to come to meet him there on the dock because maybe there was something else going on in the city and there would be another riot. There had been a riot in that city, huge riot. And so they came and met him on the dock. Paul admonished the elders in the church, the pastors, against the savage wolves who would attack, ravage the flock, distort the foundation of truth. Yes, the very gospel that he had laid, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he came to redeem sinful people, died on the cross, resurrected again for our eternal redemption. There would be people who would come and ravage or try to ravage like a hungry wolf attacks a young animal. And Paul passionately poured out his heart of love for Christ to these believers. And you know, they all knelt down. They prayed, they wept, and in Acts 20 it says they fell on his neck, and that means they just wouldn't let him go. It just wouldn't let him go. They lingered, and then finally they, they kissed him, and that's what Middle Eastern people do. Sometimes they do that in Mexico. It might make a man feel a little uncomfortable when another man gives him a kiss. It's happened. <laughs> but it is a warm and close and very holy kiss. The beloved apostle, his doctor friend, who uses so often the word we, he says we had to, to tear ourselves away from this church. It was such a memorial. Oh. Now they have to travel between Ephesus and Jerusalem, and that's where we are. They're traveling. It's a travel narrative. Probably people of God, several other people are traveling with in the we, in the we. It's probably Luke, Paul, and several others because they're bringing an offering from the Gentile people to bless the Jewish people. 
in hopes of a great turning of the Jews to Christ and maybe the Lord's return. We always have to wait for the Lord's return. So it's a momentous thing. And Paul stands uh, and leans on the rail of that ship deck. He feels the soft, briny Mediterranean breeze on his face. That breeze pulses the boat forward with its sails flapping and its bow splashing in the water. Those of you who have sailed know exactly what I mean. And Paul is standing out there in this interlude. Yes, in this holy interlude. You see, things are going to flare up. And there's going to be danger and negativity in Jerusalem. Paul will come breathtakingly close to losing his life right there in the temple grounds. He'll be put into chains. But as for now, there is an interlude, a time between. Something holy. Hmm. Have you ever experienced that? Well, I'm not going to let you get away and get out of this story. Your story is involved in his story. Our story is the story of the people of God. You don't get away. Sometimes God has to give us a time out or a pause. Mm, he has to give us an interlude. I think about the pleasant time that we had in Mexico City our first couple years. However, we're in Chiapas and we walked about the jungle and preached the gospel in the jungle and it was extremely difficult. And I expressed to my son-in-law that that was the hardest days of my life. Physically, I could, at the age of 27, hardly bear up with that burden of climbing those mountains in the hot jungle tropical climate and then have to preach at the end of the day and do all of the things that we did in our movement to motivate and reinvigor the churches that had been planted by Wycliffe and other missionaries. It was absolutely exhausting. After several years, I was offered the opportunity to go to Westminster Seminary and study the Doctorate of Ministries, and it was for me a holy interlude. <laughs> Absolutely, I was so refreshed to sit at the feet of Harvey Kahn, Edmund Clowney, and other great teachers, and just think about where we were at and where we were going. And it was a pivotal time in the future. future interludes come, people of God, in many different ways. Uh, they may come like that but they may come in other ways too. You may be sick for an extended period of time and be put on your back in bed. That may happen and you'll need to look up and you may say, this 
is wasting my time. I have important things to do, but you know, God doesn't waste your time. He has some important things to say and to direct. It, it may happen when uh, you, you lose your job and you feel really down. You feel disoriented and kind of listless and what am I doing? There are many circumstances. God doesn't waste his interludes either. He has something to say and you need to look up and meditate and rely on him as the God of all goodness, faithfulness, mercy, direction, purpose. Don't squander those interludes. So I invite you to think about the space in Paul's life, looking at four places. I want to take you now on a little geographical journey, a little travelogue. It's very important to notice also the where things happen in Scripture. So I want to invite you, and you'll see on the outline that we're going to go to four places. Two of them are major, two of them are less major, and we're going to talk a little bit about those places. And the first is Tyre. Verse 3, they went to a place called Tyre. They landed there and were, the ship was unloading its cargo. They were there for seven days. They passed the island of Kos, where Hippocrates, the father of medicine, was born. Some of these Islands, by the way, are kind of familiar nowadays because uh, there have been immigrations through Greece and we hear about these islands. And in a minute, we're going to talk about a city not very far from Aleppo. We know that Aleppo was destroyed in the Syrian war. But they, they passed by the island of Kos and the breezes gently guided them. They were in the time of the year when the breezes were gentle and good. And to the starboard, they passed Rhodes. And to the port side, they passed Cyprus. And Cyprus brings all kinds of memories up because that's where the first missionary journey went with Paul and Barnabas walking on the island of Cyprus. And Manasin came from Cyprus. And you know, Cyprus was also part of Paul's journeys. And they went. 800 miles floating down the Mediterranean to the coast of Palestine, and they found Tyre. Tyre is 300 miles to the north of Antioch and Aleppo. There was a congregation in Tyre, and that congregation was a precious congregation to Paul. That congregation was going to minister to Paul and give him great encouragement. And he was going to be there seven days with him. Now, we may think that the pastor is the strongest and most spiritual man in the congregation. And that may be true at times, but it may not also be true at certain times. The pastor is very much attacked. The pastor and the elders have a very big responsibility, and Satan works extra hours on them, and he can discourage them. He can do many things against them, 
And by the way, today we see in the church a great apostasy, and many times it starts with the pastors who have doubted God and his word, and believe me, Satan is working over time on the, on the pastors and the missionaries and the ones who are your leaders. Great challenges. Paul was not exempt from that. He needed encouragement and that little congregation gave him encouragement. Sometimes pastors too need to step back for a moment. They need to have these interludes too. They need to have the congregation support them in these interludes, pray for them, maybe give them a little gift of something Maybe an invite or a meal or just a recognition of their effort and a little bit of praise. That'll go a long way. Now, we don't know that much about the congregation of Tyre, but we know a couple things, and I wanted to kind of establish that with you. At the death of Stephen, when the church was scattered to Phoenicia, Acts 11, the congregation was established. So Jewish people went there, went to Tyre, established that church, and they were very good at inviting Gentile people in. Very good. In Psalm 87, it was prophesied that the gospel would eventually reach even Tyre. The gospel would get to those people too. Hiram, king of Tyre, was the first foreign leader to recognize David as Israel's king, and he sent gifts, and he sent products to build the temple. Paul and Barnabas had visited them earlier, that Gentile congregation. Paul had visited them and he wanted to keep up with them. He encouraged that congregation not to follow the Jewish legalism, ceremonies, regulations in Acts 15. Now that church gets a message from the Holy Spirit. Yes, they did get a message, and they interpreted it as Paul, do not go to Jerusalem because of imminent danger. Paul listens very carefully, and he understands the message. But it wasn't a prohibition. It was a preparation. Something's coming, and this is what the seasoning of a holy interlude will do. It will put you in a refined and attuned relationship with the Lord, and you will listen and you will hear. He knows that things are going to get tough, and the church tells him that. Later, the entire congregation accompanies Paul to the dock, again, sounds familiar, to the beach. And there they kneel. And they commend Paul and Luke and the other travelers to the Heavenly Father's care. And they use these moments to show peace and concern for their missionary pastor friend. Seth and Amber and all of those who are parents, I want to just stop here a minute. Look, the little children came too. Did you catch that? 
Look at these details. The little children, this is a beautiful painting. And what did the little children do? They also kneeled at the beach. That is covenant. Isn't it precious? Jesus wanted us to bring our children to him. It can't get more personal than that. They kneeled there. This is so important in the gospel. Our children, they're not whatever. Their future and their care is not to be given to luck or fate or the stars. Mm, they are holy to the Lord. That's what we see here. They're covenant children. And they kneel and they pray for the pastor and the missionaries to pray. Isn't this a great interlude? Wow. Now, i got to move on in this, in this uh, travelogue because otherwise we're going to be here, you know, very late. But I hope you're enjoying this journey. The next stop is Ptolemus. It's about 30 miles to the south of Tyre, and they again take the boat down there. Now they're going to get off here. And I'm going to be very brief about this, but Ptolemus is extremely close to Mount Carmel, if you look on the map. It's where the great battle in Kings, 1 Kings 18 occurred between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. It's near Megiddo. It's in the breadbasket area, not very far from there, but it's extremely spiritual and demonic. And in that area, in that city, Ptolemus even means, you know, kings of Egypt. These were the Ptolemy who dominated there. I mean, it is so foreign and so full of all of those evil culture ideas and false gods everywhere. Uh, wow, how can the gospel get in a place like that? But it did. You place that seed and it grows. And that's the point. Christ and his body are everywhere. Jesus will have dominion, and he is taking dominion in the world through the preaching of his gospel, the spreading of the seed, and the Holy Spirit makes that grow. And we need to support that with all of our heart and lives. And it must have been encouraging to Paul to stand on this ancient soil and to know that, you know, this is my father's world. This is not Satan's world. And we don't make any apologies. <clears throat> We're unabashed. We go forward in that world. There is a dramatic conflict on the world in the world order today. As there was in the apostles' days. And we must venture forward and establish the kingdom of God 
under the guidance of Christ and his spirit and the Father. No evil on earth can stop the gospel of Christ. Sometimes, as a person who was born and raised in the church, and my father was, and my grandfather was, and my great-grandfather was, and, you know, went back quite a ways over there to, I don't know, time of the Reformation, probably. I lose sight of that. But when I meet someone who has had the power of the gospel just hit them in between the eyes and they have changed, I am so encouraged. Because I know that my Redeemer lives. If he can do that, wow. We have to bear witness. Now we're going to move south, 35 miles. Paul goes to Caesarea. I have to talk a little bit more about Caesarea because at Caesarea, Philip meets Paul. And you remember who Philip was. He was the deacon who was also a wonderful evangelist and preacher, went to Samaria, completed the cause of Christ there. He was a deacon, one of the seven, the deacon. And it was a beautiful experience for Paul to reunite with uh, him. You know, I mean, they were both there at Stephen's stoning too, right? One was on the right side of things, one was on the wrong side. Eventually, they both got to be on the right side. And as they were talking, and you know, he had these four daughters who were virgins, and they were ones who evidently had a big outreach. Church history says they were all martyred at a certain gate there. Um, there comes that prophet Agabus, and he's rambling down the road. Oh, I've had that thing happen in Mexico. I've had prophets come into churches, you know, when I was there. And I kind of stand back and say, oh, I don't quite know what's going on here. And this was a real prophet of God. He had previously prophesied about the, Jewish, the Jerusalem famine, in Acts 11, and like an Old Testament prophet, sometimes he brought harsh words, and he brought them in a picturesque way. You know, Jeremiah smashed a jar, Ezekiel laid a scroll, Hosea married a promiscuous woman. Agabus had this drama to perform, and so he takes Paul's belt, as we read. He was probably shaking and trembling. He tied his own hands and feet with it, sat down, and he looked sternly at Paul in the eye, and he pronounced that Paul would be handed over to the Gentiles, and this was a grave prediction because Jesus was also handed over to the Gentiles. It wasn't without God's approval, without God's scrutiny and understanding and oversight and plan. Great cost of the cross began when Jesus was handed over to the Gentiles. Imagine that scene. The people began to weep and to moan. Don't go to Jerusalem, they said. And Paul's heart was broken again. This is the third warning. Three strikes and you're out? I don't think so. But this was what was going to happen. Oh, brothers, sisters, are we willing to bear something for the gospel? Now, nothing can stop him. Paul was totally resolved to go to Jerusalem. He had a great vision for the Jewish people. He wanted his people to come in. I do believe that many Jewish people will come in and inherit salvation. 
wasn't at that time exactly. Many are coming in today through Jewish evangelism. I believe that will happen. He had this great vision and he hoped that if the Gentile offering would be received, then many Jews would say, well, those Gentiles, they even give to us and we hated them so much and we were so separate from them. If God can give this unity and this peace and this exchange, then we can believe this Jesus is real. Well, Paul didn't only have one interlude in his life. 20 years previous, at least, Paul was converted and he experienced another interlude. He waited for the direction in a dark corner on that street called Straight, and Ananias came and said, Paul, you will suffer many things for my name. His message from Jesus, and Paul remembered that. And in Ephesus, Paul was compelled by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem, and Paul remembered that. And in this interlude, there was a question, was the Holy Spirit now saying, Paul, you better not go there? Or was he saying, you know, Paul, there's going to be serious problems, I'm telling you. Get yourself ready. Well, in this holy interlude, Paul's resolve was set. In the time between Jerusalem and Ephesus and Jerusalem, it's a validating time where Paul is called to step into the Spirit's guidance. He puts his face toward Jerusalem and he does not turn to the left or to the right. You know, Luke tells us that about Jesus too. He says that as his time approached, For him to be taken up into heaven, Jesus resolutely resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Paul is on a mission to follow Christ. What purposes do interludes serve? Are they for us to just rest or vacation? Are holy interludes things that we receive from the Lord just to waste some time? Are they time for a pity party or time to be angry with the Lord for what has happened? I met a man not so long ago who was thrown out of work. He didn't know what to do. He was back and forth about the whole thing. And one of his friends said, you know what, why don't you take a seminary class? He ended up being a really effective and great pastor. I'm not saying that's what we all have to do, but I'm just giving that as as an example of what can happen in your life. Um, Wow. On a hospice bed, a cancer patient realizes that flat on his back, he can look up. And he has a few weeks, only a few, to say farewell to his family and loved ones, to witness the gospel to them, and to prepare for his next great step. Paul, he knows what he has to do. This interlude confirms the Lord's plans for him, and it isn't easily easy. It's, in fact, bone-chilling and tough. But we can rest only when we rest in God's grace and love and exercise faith 
and guaranteed you will step into a whole new experience with Jesus. Your Christian faith will grow by leaps and bounds, and I'm going to say that many are a witness of this truth. Wow. Well, our, our last uh, step is Manasson's home in Jerusalem. They arrived to Jerusalem. Manasson is a Cyprian Jew, and remember that Paul t- had taken his first missionary steps on the island of Cyprus, and he went up into Asia Minor, brief ter- missionary journey, that first one. Emanason knew this journey well. Remember, he was one of Paul's first fruits, you could say. It was a wisdom. It was a person who was invaluable to Paul. Doesn't say much about that, but I'm sure they talked about those things. Paul was in Jerusalem. There were some great things that were going to happen to take place. The world was going to get shaken for Paul. There was going to be great lies and violence, a riot, soldiers, legal procedures, an assassination plot. It was all ahead. These were things that the Lord had prepared for him. But this short, holy interlude served to prepare him. And he was ready to step forward. A couple of ideas as we conclude for you, just to kind of tie this up and put a, put a knot around it. Every believer will have times to pause and reflect on the rhythm and the balance of your life. I guarantee you, you will have that. So these will be interludes. A person can say, well, you know, that interlude, that holy, that interlude, that thing that's happening to me is good or bad in a natural setting. setting. It may look bad. But we have to be tentative on that. You may not even be able to tell what's going on during that time. You must be faithful in that time and always look up but you may not know the value of that time for some time to come in the future. You're gonna have to trust the Lord on that one. And so, number three, at times we need to be silent. We need to stand by the rail of the ship, let the breeze go in our hair, mess it up a bit, listen because the Holy Spirit is blowing his breath on you, and it may be a still small voice, but he's talking. We can get to know the Holy Spirit better through the interludes of our life. He was directing Paul. You know, the other people were kind of blowing air the other way, saying, Paul, you really don't want to go up there. But he was getting what the Spirit wanted. He was listening to that voice, and God will never contradict himself. Now, it is possible for a Christian to squander and piddle away his interludes. It's possible to be listless, to be angry, to be stubborn, to have a bad attitude or even great fear and let that wave overwhelm you. Please do not do that. You're wasting your gold. 
Interludes affirm a calling and a direction, and they can reinvigorate our life by offering new challenges and purposes. Are they difficult? Yes, but they're powerful and purposeful, and greater things are still to come. You are more than a conqueror in Christ our Lord. That's what I'm saying. An interlude can prepare you for greater joy or maybe a trial, even another one. So what do you have to do in these holy interludes? You have to trust the Lord, rely on his revelation, the testimony of scripture, be like Jesus because he will come close to you when you are between those two poles. He will clarify things and use this time to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you and bless you for this word. And we ask that your spirit would apply to each one these words of wisdom and peace. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.